Well, tonight we are going to look at the second part of a message that I began on Sunday, um, a message that I entitled, A Biblical Church is a Converted Church. And next week, then, we will enter back into our Route 66 series and continue with that through the semester. But I wanted to bring this two-part series kind of as an introduction to Titus, which I'm going to begin on Sundays, but also just to challenge us here at the beginning of a new year to, to understand the church in the way that it's supposed to be understood and to understand conversion as we need to understand conversion. And so if you would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read our text again for us, and then we will look at the, the second half of it. Beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I asked the question on Sunday, what does it take to have a biblical church? What is a biblical church? What are the key components to a biblical church? And, and there are several answers to that question, but... We wanted to spend a couple sessions answering that question by saying a biblical church is a converted church. First and foremost, of every other thing it could possibly be, a biblical church is a converted church. It has to be a converted church. If it's a church is not made up of converted people, it is not a church. The church is the bride of Christ. It is the household of God. It is those who have been saved. It is those whom the Holy Spirit indwells. And so as we get back into our text, I want to remind you of where we are in our text. Remember, this is the day of Pentecost. And after the Holy Spirit came down in a unique way, and brought different languages down, different tongues for people to, to hear the gospel in those various languages, Peter rose up and began to preach. And he preached a very convicting sermon. He indicted these particular Jews who were there in Jerusalem and, and those people who were there for Passover, there from the surrounding nations. He indicted them by saying that they were the ones who nailed Christ to the cross. 
And he used passages from the book of Joel and from the Psalms. And then in verse 36 is when he brought the hammer down and said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was the point of conviction that Peter brought. That was him arguing them, backing them into a corner with these texts from the Old Testament, these biblical arguments, and then he pinned them to the back wall, so to speak, and said, listen, this Jesus whom you have crucified is both Lord and Christ. And so they responded to that, and we looked at that on Sunday there in verse 37, as he said, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the hearts. We labeled this the epicenter of, of true conversion. This was the conviction of sin. They, they were wrought with guilt that this Lord and Christ was the one they had nailed to the cross. Now he had risen again. And now Peter was proclaiming him to them. So they were pierced to the heart. They were, they were overwhelmed with the reality of their guilt and the reality of the sin that was placed upon them. They were convicted of it. They were pierced to the heart. This is where the Holy Spirit began to work in them. And they asked the question, what then shall we do? And that's where we saw the second, second point regarding conversion. And that was the exclusivity of true conversion. And this is where Peter goes on to describe, this is how you respond when you are cut to the quick in your spiritual soul. When you are overwhelmed with the guilt of your sin and understand who you are before a holy God. This is what you must do. And he explains it basically in three parts. First of all, through repentance. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, you have to repent. You have to change your thinking. You have to turn from trusting in the, the ritual, the, the religion of Judaism and everything you're believing in and trusting in, and you have to turn exclusively to Christ alone. You have to turn from your sin, from yourself, from your religion, from this world, and you have to turn to Christ. That's what repentance is. And then they were to be baptized, which was the, the outward sign of the inward transformation, the outward manifestation of the inward trans transformation, if you will. And when they were saved, they were immediately baptized because... That was what the Jews did when Gentiles became Jewish proselytes. They were baptized to show that they were going from their, their pagan ways to Judaism. And so here, Peter is saying, listen, repent, come to Christ, and then be baptized to show that you now belong to Christ. And then he explained the exclusivity of conversion through God's effectual call there in verse 39, talking about how the Lord our God will call as many 
who are far off to himself. Salvation is through God alone. It's on his terms and it's according to his sovereign grace. God determines who he is going to save and then he puts the plan in motion and he draws all of those to himself whom he chose before the foundation of the world. We saw that that call is irrevocable. It is an irrevocable summons by the king of the universe to come to him. It cannot be pushed against. It cannot be thwarted. All of those whom God intended to save, he will save. We saw a third element of the exclusivity of true conversion, and that is the preaching of the gospel. The end of verse 40 says that Peter kept solemnly testifying, kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And we were challenged at the end of our time on Sunday to, to be committed to continually calling people to genuine repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from Romans chapter 10 that all of those whom the Father has chosen and will call to himself will come to him through no other way than the preaching of the gospel. A person must respond to the truth of the gospel in order to be saved. That is the means which God has prescribed. And so we saw that in the exclusivity of true conversion. Well, this then brings us to the third reality concerning conversion, which is this, number three, the evidence of true conversion, which we find in verses 41 and 42. And remember, the purpose of looking at these realities is so that we will be gospel-centered. We will be a gospel-centered people, a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered college group. That's what we want. And so as you look at the text, you see that at this point they were pierced to the heart and they asked what they must do and Peter calls them to repent. Look at verse 41 with me. It begins with, so then. So then. This phrase indicates that Luke is going to conclude this portion of the narrative with the results of Peter's gospel preaching. They received it. They gladly repented of their sin and confessed Christ as Lord. They committed their wills to follow Christ. We have every indication of that in the text. They turned from their sin. They turned from their self-reliance. They turned from their Judaistic rituals and from their trust in a religious system. And they turned to follow Christ. We need to think about this for a moment. I mean, we see that clearly in the text. That they asked what they should do. Peter tells them what they should do. And every indication is from verse 41 that people came to Christ that day. 3,000 people. We've all known people in our lives who have made this profession. But after this, nothing in their lives have changed. 
We've known people who've responded, as far as we can tell, to the truth of the gospel. But then you look a few months down the line, sometimes it doesn't even take that long, but you look down the line and you see that there's really nothing different about their lives. Matthew 7 tells us that in the last day, people will stand before Christ and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name or do this in your name, prophesy, heal people, do miracles in your name? And on that day, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. It's heartbreaking. It leaves us confused with many questions. It challenges our Sunday school answers that we hold on to so tightly. There are so many false professions of faith in the church. It's important that we understand that that's why Peter goes on here to explain the evidences of true conversion. It is important for us to understand that when a person truly professes faith in Jesus Christ, is truly converted after having their hearts pierced with conviction, turning in repentance and faith to the Lord, that their life is going to change. And when you turn to Christ, your life changes. It's very important we understand that. Because Peter, aware of the fact that there are false professions in the church, and something that Jesus even warned about, it's important for us to ask, how do we then judge from a human level whether or not someone is a true believer? Certainly, God alone truly knows the heart of a person. But if we want to be biblical, if we want to be a biblical church and therefore a, a converted church, we then need to be able to identify the biblical evidences of true conversion. And though this passage doesn't include the exhaustive list of these evidences, the New Testament is full of evidences of what genuine conversion produces, it does provide us with the primary or the predominant indications that, that God has truly done a salvific work in a person. And so it's very important that we understand these things. And it's those primary evidences that I want us to examine the remainder of our time this evening. And I put them into three categories with the first category being, number one, immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. The first evidence of true conversion that we are faced with in verse 41 is that these people who had just received the gospel immediately followed the command to be baptized and were added to the church. As I mentioned last time, baptism is the first command for a new believer to follow. By the way, I'm proud of many of you because I was talking to Josh Scarborough this week and uh, you know, before Sunday he had four applications and now he has 22 and there were a lot of college names in that list. So some of you maybe were paying attention on Sunday. 
We know that baptism demonstrates outwardly to everyone around the inward transformation that has just occurred. This baptism for the Jews demonstrated that they were breaking away from the customs of the day and the Judaistic chains that held them so tight. They, they were now identifying publicly with Christ. Unfortunately, baptism has lost some of its significance for believers today. Not its inherent significance, it can't lose that, but, but amongst believers, in the midst of believers, in the midst of the church, I think this is due to the false Christianity that has come to to dominate our world in so many respects. When those who heard Peter that day turned from their sin and their religion to Christ, there was no question what they were professing. The, The decision that they were making was black and white. It was abundantly clear. I mean, they they called this in the New Testament, they called this the way. And this is why they went after Paul, because he was, he was teaching the way. People easily knew who the followers of Christ were versus either your pagan Gentiles or your Jews who practiced Judaism. It was very clear. But because of the false teaching concerning baptism, which has arisen in the nominal Christianity that is pervasive, the importance of baptism as it was originally established has been somewhat lost to the point that some people who I believe are truly born again, they do have a clear understanding of the gospel, have even totally shied away from baptism because there's been so much mixture of baptism and saying that it's foundational to salvation in so many of our denominations today. And some people have swung the pendulum all the way to the other side and said, well, we don't want anything to do with that. So we're truly believers. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we're not going to identify with baptism because there's just too much mixture. And that's not a good response. But as a result of this messed up understanding of baptism that somehow water baptism is included in the salvation process. When we approach baptism in our day, it is important that we make sure that the person getting baptized understands its significance in relationship to the gospel and commitment they are making in this act of obedience. Again, you look at texts in the Bible. I mean, you have this text in Acts 2. You have the Ethiopian eunuch that um, uh, Philip evangelizes and And what you have is immediate baptism. They understand the truth of the gospel and they're baptized. Immediately they're identified with with Christ in that way. It's not the same today because of how baptism has been misunderstood and and corrupted and and because of how the gospel has been corrupted by so many different denominations. Now we have a clear-cut process to walk through. Many of you have walked through that process here at Countryside. I love our process. I think it's really helpful. You are explaining the gospel as you write out your application. You are then sitting with a person, interviewing concerning the gospel, making sure you understand questions. Then you are going to stand up in front of people and you are going to to testify your story concerning how God saved you through Christ to people. I think that's a pretty healthy, in-depth process. 
I don't think it was always that way. But I think it has to be that way now. And, and so that's why it's necessary at times, especially for, for those who are younger when they come to Christ, for, for them to understand the importance and significance and, and to be patient as they come. I mean, we don't, I don't know if we have a necessary, if we have an age here, we might have an age. I've heard different numbers thrown around, but, but it's weird to put an age to these things. But at the same time, you want to be able to have a person articulate the truths of the gospel. And then that is when they should get baptized. With that being said, if you are a follower of Jesus, having repented and believed upon Christ and have not been baptized, then you need to obediently pursue this God-ordained ordinance. Even though it is a process. But you see in the text that along with their immediate obedience and baptism, that they also were added to the church in membership. How do I know that? Well, look at the end of verse 41. It says, In that day were added about 3,000 souls. Luke puts a specific number in the text for a reason. That reason, because he is emphasizing the importance of becoming a part of the local body. They kept account of those who belonged to Christ because the apostles were responsible to feed and to care for them spiritually. Church membership is not an issue that is up for debate as many evangelicals think today, and perhaps you've struggled with this. The way that God has designed the structure of the church means that there is to be spiritual leadership with spiritual authority delegated by Christ, the head of the church, and that believers are to join a local congregation with this in place and then humbly submit themselves to the leadership of that church. Understanding, of course, that everyone is submitting themselves to the scriptures in this process. It's not a submission to a hierarchy for the sake of that hierarchy. It's submission to that hierarchy for the sake of Christ. Church membership is the only way for believers to maintain mutual accountability, practice church discipline, truly care for one another as one does his own body. And it's no wonder that, that the analogy of the body is used so often in reference to the church. When you think about how your body functions, how all of your limbs have to function in unison for you to do what you need to do. Now that is the analogy that's put upon the church, that every person in the church has to fulfill their particular responsibility. Well, <clears throat> that's because they are a part of a local body. They're not operating amongst themselves. They're not just arms functioning, doing their own arm thing or feet, doing their own feet thing. We saw somebody come in here, and all we saw was just arms or legs or feet. It would terrify us, and we would say simply, something's not right. right? That's the analogy, though, that's placed upon 
the church. Is that when people function individually according to their own mandates and their own rules and the things that they establish, their own preferences, with a lack of submission to the authority that God has placed upon the church, it's as if they are functioning like that. And it should be odd to us. We should not be okay with the fact that somebody is an individualistic Christian. Membership to a local church body enables the body to function properly and biblically. Immediate obedience, which is an evidence of true conversion in the life of a new believer, manifests itself through baptism and through finding a biblical church to covenant with in membership. Church is not to be a place of half-hearted complacency, but rather a complete commitment to the body is to be made. If you need to become a member, then you need to pursue that step of obedience today. It's very important. Peter is telling us right off the bat here on the day of Pentecost when the the church was established, when the church came into existence, the first two evidences of a genuine Christian is that they are baptized, they are identified with Christ, and that they join a local assembly. Before moving on to the second category, I want to expound on this evidence of obedience for a minute. Genuine Christians are obedient Christians beyond the primary acts of baptism and membership. They are predominant, they are primary, but Christians are obedient beyond those things. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? See, if Jesus is Lord of your life and That's what you have professed if you are truly converted. Then you are to line up your life according to what he demands in his word. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you do not follow Christ and what he says. The Bible's clear your works of obedience can't save you, but they do demonstrate your faith. James tells us that faith without works is is dead. You see, genuine conversion will always be demonstrated by obedience to the truth. And again, we're not talking in terms of perfection. We're never talking in terms of perfection. Christ was the only perfect one. His life was the only perfect life. That's why we come to him alone. That's why his perfect righteousness has to be imputed to our Sinful accounts. That's why Christ has to take our sin and we have to get his righteousness. We're only talking about perfection when it comes to Christ. So when we're talking about this obedience to the truth, we're never talking in terms of perfection. We aren't perfect. We're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. We're always talking about it in terms of direction. That the direction of your life, the direction of my life, as a truly converted person, is obedience to the truth of the word of God. 
It's obedience to the commands of Christ. It's, it's striving to obey Him. And when we fail, we repent. When we get knocked off the horse, we get back on the horse. We keep going. We keep moving forward. It is a direction of obedience to the truth. This is, this is being obedient in biblical priorities with your time, with your treasures, with your talent. This is being obedient by being a godly son or a godly daughter or a godly student or a godly employee. This is being obedient by submitting to the guidelines of your parents. This is being obedient by submitting to your elders who God has placed over you. This is being obedient to evangelize even when you are scared. The list goes on and on. You are called to obey. Immediate obedience is the clearest and most primary evidence of a truly converted soul. There's a second category that I want you to see in the first part of verse 42, and that is enduring devotion. Enduring devotion. Look at the beginning of verse 42. He says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now in a moment, we'll look at what they were specifically devoted to, but I want to draw out the emphasis that Luke is using here. It says there in verse 42, notice those words, they were continually devoting themselves to these things. The idea here is that they were characterized by biblical priorities. This comes from the heart this is not talking about the externals. This is talking about the priorities of the heart, this devotion of the heart. To devote is to hold fast to. It is to continue in, to persevere. They committed their time, their energy, their resources, and their gifts to the church as a whole. Christ and his church became the immediate priority of their lives. This begs the question, is your life characterized as continually devoted to the things of God? Are you continually devoted to the things of God? This question hits us right between the eyes. Right, is the ministry of the church central to your life? I love these passages in the early part of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, because you just see this single-hearted devotion to Christ and to His church. Unlike we have ever experienced in this world. The implication here is that your spiritual priorities come first in your life and in your home. Not work, not sports, not money, not making money, not the priorities of this world, not entertainment, not relaxation, not comfort. 
Would you say that every person in your home would point to the church and the worship of God through the means of the church as the preeminent priority of your family? Can you say that as God blesses you at some point with a spouse, and Lord willing, you then have children, begin your life together, can you say that it is the desire of your heart that the preeminent priority of your life be the church, the worship of God. We live in an evangelical culture that has an immensely shallow version of ecclesiology that is continuing to deepen where commitment to the church is not essential. Listen to me. Being continually devoted to the God-ordained church, to what Christ Jesus, to who Christ Jesus exists as the head, is, is the preeminent, the predominant evidence of true conversion. You have to be committed to the church. You have to be devoted to the church. Just as the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian, it knows nothing of a Christian who is not devoted to the church. You show me a so-called Christian who says they don't need the church and they don't prioritize the church and I will submit to you that that person is not a Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of that person. This individual, individual, I can't say, the individualistic Christianity that has come into our world and be, be, begun to dominate so much of evangelical Christianity is a false Christianity. True believers are attached and devoted to the local church. And this devotion is simply seen and evidenced in how they prioritize their lives. There are so many things in this life begging for our attention. There are so many demands that are pulling us in one direction or another. But there is nothing, there is no demand as important as the demand that calls you to be devoted the church of Jesus Christ. And I promise you that if you prioritize that in your life, regardless of all of the different directions God takes you, all the different experiences you get to have, I promise you that if your first and foremost priority in your life is the worship of God in the local church, that you are going to be a happy, content Christian regardless of what life brings. A truly biblical church 
is a truly converted church which is evidenced by a devoted life to the church. This brings us to the third. Third evidence seen in the second half of verse 42, and that is definitive action. Definitive action. Evidence of true conversion is not only seen in enduring devotion to the church, but also in devoting ourselves to specific priorities within the church. Devoting yourself to the church is not some mystical notion. Biblical churches have biblical priorities, and genuine believers give themselves to these priorities. Look at the second half of verse 42, and Luke lists those priorities out. And these were what the early church were committed to. They were, committed, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. That is the revealed revelation from God. It was communicated by these appointed men. This was the Old Testament and, and the revelation of Christ and, and his fulfillment of the Old Testament. This was the gospel. Christ was now able to be explained in light of Old Testament prophecy. For us, this is the word of God. We, we have it better off than the early church because we have God's complete written revelation in the scriptures. You understand that? You know, we think about, man, it'd been awesome to be alive in, in Bible times. See those things, be a part of those things. and That's true, no doubt about it. I visited the land of Israel. It's unbelievable to think about walking in the same places that Jesus has walked and all of those kinds of things. But the reality is, and Peter says this in his, in his epistle, that we are way better off because we have the entirety of God's written revelation to us. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. We have everything that God wanted to communicate to man right here in this text. We need to be devoted to God's word. We need to be prepared to hear it preached. We need to be eager to hear it and eager to obey what it says. James chapter 1 speaks to this issue. And James says this. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I believe he's talking to believers there. He's talking about the receiving of the word of God. And that saving your souls that he's talking about, verse 21, is the sanctification of, of your souls. He says, but prove yourselves that to be doers of the word and not, mere hearers, not merely hearers only who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." You must have a personal devotion to the Word of God. Specifically here in Acts chapter 2, he's talking about that, that corporate 
devotion, coming together and listening to the word preached, but the way that you prepare to receive the word on Sundays and Wednesdays when you come and sit under it is that you have a relationship with the word throughout the week. That your relationship with God goes beyond Sundays and Wednesdays. You are walking with the Lord. You are in his word. You are asking him, Lord, teach me. And so when you come and you sit under the word on Sundays and Wednesdays, you have been going through this process all week of getting rid of the filthiness, of repenting and saying, Lord, deal with the issues of my heart and my life. Help me to see the truth. Help me to know the truth. Help me to glean the truth. And so when you come, sit under the word, you are ready to receive it. It's been said, and you've heard this a number of times, the key to sanctification is meditation, and the key to meditation is memorization. Evidence of true conversion is devotion to the word of God. They were also devoted to fellowship. It says, this was a harmonious unity that existed among new believers, which was centered around their newfound commonality in Christ, their newfound purpose as the church, their mutual accountability, their love, their care, their concern for one another and the truth. They were bonded together by the Holy Spirit. See, when fellowship looks like this, like the picture that you see in the early church, it is the greatest fellowship that exists on this planet. And it's essential that we prioritize fellowship. True biblical fellowship is an evidence of genuine conversion. It's getting past talking about our week or sports or family, though there's always a place for those things. It involves connecting with one another on a deeper spiritual level really genuinely caring about your brothers and sisters in Christ and how they are doing spiritually. Are they walking with Christ? Do they need to be encouraged? Do they need to be held up? Do they need to be challenged? This kind of fellowship marks a true believer. I mean, you guys have lots of friendships, lots of relationships with people. Maybe in your workplace, maybe in the schools, different things like that. You have relationships with unbelievers, maybe many people in your family are that way. Those relationships are extremely surface, are they not? I mean, I, I have uncles who know nothing of the gospel, nothing, know nothing of Christ because they've determined that's how they want to be. And, and I'll be honest, when I go and I'm with them, I mean, we can have a good time. We can talk about things, but I can tell you what it's always going to be about. We're always going to talk about the Broncos. We're always going to talk about the Nuggets. You know, we're always going to talk about the Rockies. Three Denver teams, if you're wondering what in the world I just said. We're going to talk about those things. We're going to laugh. We're going to mock the coaches. We're going to do those things. And that's going to be the entirety of that conversation. And you look at that conversation, you think, that means absolutely nothing. And that's true. It doesn't. There's no spiritual commonality there. There's no Holy Spirit directing our hearts towards one another, bonding us together to talk about things that matter, things that are eternal. That's what is happening in this text. When they were committing themselves to fellowship, they were committing themselves to talking about and being, talking about things that matter and being in one another's lives for eternal purposes. That's why we exist. 
And so we have to get past that in our relationships. We have to get past that in our friendships. We have to get down to the things that matter. We can't live on the surface. Truly converted people don't live on the surface. The church is not the place for surface relationships focused on the temporary and and mediocrity. It is a place for deep, meaningful, spiritual relationships that are God-focused, that are God-glorifying. Don't come here wearing a facade. Commit yourself to being genuine and pursuing this, this evidence of true conversion. It goes on in the text, say, breaking bread. This is the Lord's Supper. This is communion. This is a special and significant time to remember Christ's sacrifice. For them, it was a feast. <coughs> Excuse me. For us, it is the bread and the cup. This is the... <coughs> I'm going to die soon. This is the proclamation of of Christ's death until he comes. You should be here on Sunday. We do it every third Sunday of the month. That's this Sunday. We get to spend time taking part in this wonderful proclamation of Christ's death. Evidence of conversion shows itself in being devoted to celebrating the Lord's table as a church. Make sure you're here Make sure you're prepared. Make sure you're focused. Finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. Devoted themselves to prayer. They had specific prayers that they cited in the early church. The point for us is clear. A genuine believer is marked by prayer. If we want to be a biblical church, which is a converted church, then our lives must demonstrate devotion to prayer. And prayer is hard. I've had many conversations with you, many conversations with myself about how much time we waste in prayer. We get sidetracked with other things in our thinking. We lose our focus. It takes work. It takes discipline. But a converted person is a person who is devoted to prayer or devoted to corporate prayer When prayers are taking place in in our corporate assemblies, you're praying along with the person who's leading in prayer, individual prayer for one another. You're thinking about just a simple way to begin working on your prayer life. You know this acronym, but ACTS, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication walking through those things, going before the Lord. Converted person, converted church is a church that's, convert, that, that's devoted to prayer. The evidence of true conversion is marked by immediate obedience, enduring devotion, and definitive action. So what do we do with this? Well, I think... All of us have questions to ask ourselves concerning these things, don't we? Are you characterized by obedience in your Christian life? Are you striving to follow all of what God says, no matter the cost? If your life is marked by, is your life marked by continual devotion to the priorities of God and His church? What needs to change to make this better? What needs to be rearranged or cut out or sacrificed so that your devotion 
to Christ and his church can be single-minded? Those are good questions to ask. Good things to think about. Good points of reflection to, to have in our own lives. <clears throat> I just want to close with a short account by MacArthur in his book, The Master's Plan for the Church. Remember the first time I read this, it was, it was just extremely encouraging. He was asked, you know, he was asked about the church back in his early days as the church began to grow out there in California. <clears throat> and he says this, he says, our church is a unique place. Almost every Sunday at the reception, uh, we have for first-time visitors, I, may, I meet people from other states. A typical conversation will go like this. We're from Michigan. I say, well, how nice. Are you visiting here? They'll reply, no. We've moved here. I'll ask them why, and they'll say, to come to this church. Then they'll say, do you know where we might be able to find a place to stay until we get a house and a job? said, we've had entire families just pack up and move to Southern California to come to Grace Church. Why? Why do they do that? One good response I've heard is, we believe that life centers on the church, not the job. He goes on to say, that gives me a lump in my throat, and it makes me realize the tremendous accountability all of us in church leadership have before God to shape our churches biblically so that they glorify him. Does your life give evidence of true conversion by your devotion to the things of God? Hope it does. And if you don't know Christ, you need to come to Christ. Turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in the perfect Savior gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth concerning the church. Lord, thank you for the gift of conversion because that's what it is. All of us who've come to repentance and faith in Christ have done so only because of your grace, because of your divine call. All of us who demonstrate any kind of evidence in our lives only do so because of how you've worked in us and through us to accomplish your purposes. So Father, we give you glory for that. We praise you. We worship you. We ask that we will be biblical. We ask that you will help us to live in a way that pleases you. And we ask, Lord, for those who may not know you, who may not truly be converted, who may be convicted by the reality that there's no evidence in their life. Lord, we ask that you would save them. You would grant them grace. You would grant them repentance and faith today. Come to Christ through the gospel. We love you. Thank you for our time. In Christ's name, amen.